Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is Paul Ollinger, your host, but you knew that. I have to knock this introduction out real quick because to record this, I have to turn off the air conditioning in my office because otherwise I get a whole bunch of ambient noise, which is very distracting. And if you've listened to this podcast for a little while, you know that we're working really hard to make the technical production aspects of the show as good as they can be. And so it's 98 degrees in Atlanta today, even though it's September, you figure that out. Our guests this week are Christy Shen and Bryce Lung, authors of the new book, Quit Like a Millionaire, No Gimmicks, Luck, or Trust Fund Required. It's a book about how these two, and they're an interesting couple, they're married. Christy grew up in abject poverty in rural China, where her family lived on 44 cents a day. That's all in for food, shelter, whatever else they had to pay for. Chronic hunger and worm-infested drinking water. You heard that right, worm. Worm, like worms, like squiggly worms, were part of her youth, a regular part of her youth. Her husband, Bryce, is also a first-generation Canadian. They have their primary residence in Toronto, though they don't spend much time there. But Bryce is from a more middle-class background, as you will hear. Early in their computer programming careers, Christy and Bryce committed themselves to frugality, their adherence to the FIRE movement, that is financial independence retire early, which is this trend that advocates getting your financial stuff together as early as you can, quitting your corporate job, and then going living the life you want. I have some issues with it that I will break down in the interview, but suffice to say that these guys are living it and have been successfully advocating it also. In their early 30s, with millions in the bank, Christy and Bryce retired, and now they travel the world full-time. As all their belongings, they say, fit into two backpacks, I now realize I should have asked them, how many pairs of underwear each of them owns. I'm not weird. I just want to know, like, what's the minimum number of underwears one person should own? Christy and Bryce are co-founders of the financial independence blog, millennialrevolution.com. That's millennial-revolution.com and co-authors of their book, Quit Like a Millionaire, as I said. Are they happy? Will their plan to live on 40000 Canadian dollars blow up on them? Is the FIRE movement a little bit scary? Well, Judge for yourself. Find out all that and more by listening now. This is Christy Shen and Bryce Lung. The FI armor, the financial independence armor, because what happens when you become financially independent is that that's like an armor. So you will not be afraid that your job is going to turn bad. And if you want to develop a new identity, you can go try it. If you, For me, like I always wanted to be a writer, but financially that didn't make any sense. But now I can actually decide to do that. And if I don't make any money from blogging, it doesn't matter. And if I want to write a children's book and it doesn't make any money, doesn't matter. So it's the fact that you become financially independent and you are invincible so that you can choose what you want to do with your life and whether that's retiring or not. It's completely up to you. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Christy Shen and Bryce Lung, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you so much for having us. Bryce, I'm sorry I murdered your last name. I'll try to hit it on the outro, I promise. You all are co-authors of a great new book called Quit Like a Millionaire. Tell me why you wrote the book. 
interesting story because we actually never set out to write the book. We actually had the blog, and it was an editor from Penguin that came to us to write the book. One of her clients was a fan of our blog, and then she read it, and she called us and wanted to know if we wanted to write a book. And my first reaction was no. <laughs> my first reaction was, do you know how much work it is to write a book? Uh, no, because I had done it before fiction. And then f- throughout conversations with her over time, she kind of found out about my background, and then we discussed like why does this book need to exist. And she said, because you, you know, grew up in poverty. Uh, so at one point, my family lived on 44 cents a day in rural China. And going from that to becoming a millionaire, she thinks that that's interesting and would be helpful to other people. Because I've been in, you know, poverty, middle class, and becoming rich in all three economic statuses. So that's basically how the book came about. We didn't set out to write a book. It was an editor from Penguin that convinced us to write the book. Which, if anybody has ever tried to do anything in publishing, never happens. When you're trying to write a book. You're like begging agents to like read your stuff and like stalking them online and like doing all this kind of creepy stuff. Having someone from that side come to you directly is not, un, is completely unheard of. Oh, I've stalked a few agents before. Believe me, <laughs> <laughs> both on the literary and the comedy side. So I get it. Yeah, it's difficult. So you were writing on millennialrevolution.com. What was the mission of millennialrevolution.com? Millennial Revolution came about because I was so frustrated for our generation that a lot of parents and boomers saying that okay, you guys are all entitled, and you know you guys are job hoppers, and you're traveling instead of buying a house, and all these problems that you have is because of your own fault, and that frustrated me to no end because、um, the job that I was in was actually very unstable, and I was seeing my best friend get laid off. People were getting outsourced, and to the point of you know that traditional path of you gotta get a degree. Degree, and then you got to buy a house, and you you got to get the job, and then work until you're 65, until you you retire. Well, those things may have worked for our parents when jobs were actually more stable, and you could actually buy a house for maybe two or three times your annual salary. But millennials have to contend with is now job insecurity. I don't know anyone that has a pension and can have the same job and just work at it until you're 65. So that came out of my frustration, telling millennials that this is not our problem. It's not because of. Us being, you know, flighty or job hoppers. It's because the the problems that our parents had to deal with. It's we have now a new set of problems, and they don't really understand. So their rule book, even though it was really, they want what's best for us, and it may have worked in the 1980s. It doesn't work anymore. So millennial revolution is the new rule book of money, and this is how we're going to get out of that situation. Because if we keep following the same rule book, you're going to end up like my coworkers and like what. Almost happened to me, which is getting let go from a job. And if you had bought a really expensive house, then you'd be stuck paying a mortgage, getting into massive amounts of debt, and never being able to have job security and being able to retire. Now, your point of view on these things is that much more interesting, both to me and all the editors at Penguin, obviously, because of where you came from, Christy and Bryce. We'll talk about your background in a second, also, because、sure. I'm interested in the contrast and how that affects your relationship at home. But Christy, the book focuses mainly on your journey from the depths of poverty in rural China to becoming a millionaire. Tell me a little bit about the way you grew up. Okay, so when I grew up as a child, at the time, like a lot of China was in poverty back then because you know people didn't really have cars. There was no such thing as a credit card. Living under a totalitarian government, you know, you don't really question. Uh, how your situation is. So when I, when I was a kid, playing around in, in medical waste heaps with other children and finding elastic bands and making a skipping rope, or you know 
drinking contaminated water and getting stomach worms. That was just normal. Like everybody had that. It's not even considered poverty because everybody around was like that. So I didn't even realize that I was poor until we immigrated to Canada. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, there's hot water that you can just take showers and you don't have to grab a bucket and heat it up. And then what is this toilet thing? I, I did not know how to flush a toilet and I didn't know how it worked. And the first time I encountered it at the airport, I thought I was going to be trapped inside the stall and sucked into another portal. So I was terrified. <laughs> Too <much> toilets? <laughs> yeah, terrified of toilets. What, what were those four things that people in uh, rural China, like they oh, strive yeah, the, to the, own the, like the a bike? The four things that you strive for back then for your parents in order to be in order to be you know considered having made it is like having a tv having a bicycle having a, a camera and having a fridge like if you have those four things you've made it in, in life that, that was a maximum level of, yeah, of, of wealth mess, that you could, yeah, possibly, that you could possibly accumulate attain. in that environment yeah and then my dad because you know for my dad he this even going through poverty this was not a big deal for him because he had gone through much worse before i was born he had uh, lived through 10 years of being in a labor camp and when he was a child he lived through a famine so for him his life aspiration was to be full that was the only thing mm. he wanted in life was to be full so you know anytime i complained about anything like that or thrift store clothing or kids uh, bullying me he was just like yeah the deal with it this is the this is the real world and it, it could be so much worse you're not living in a famine you should be be grateful that you have both your parents and you have four walls and running water that's wealth to me that's good enough for you yeah so i, I think this this gave me a lot of perspective because when i talk to my friends not having gone through this and not growing up in another country you don't really see that comparison and seeing that uh perspective you really came literally from nothing almost, right? 44 cents a day is very close to nothing to feed one's family on. And your dad lived through even worse depths of poverty than that. And you say, when you're poor, money is the most important thing in the world. You develop that mindset by living through scarcity for many years of your youth. Absolutely. While I was growing up and later on in life, when my friends were th th saying things like, it's just money, it, it, it's not a big deal, it's not, it's not the most important thing in the world, it's just money. And then my reaction is always, you only think that because you've never been poor. If you've been poor, you will never ever say something like, it's only money. Because when you have that scarcity, that becomes the most important thing. And then I think that developed my mindset later on in life because I think if it wasn't for my growing up in scarcity, there is no way I would have been able to retire at the age of 31 and travel the world. Because I would have thought, you know what, just keep, you know, spend on what makes you happy and money doesn't matter. And if things doesn't work out, somebody's going to come save you. It's, it's, it's going to be fine. Like my mindset was, it's not going to be fine. You have to make it fine. You have to develop the safety nets because no one is coming to save you. Tell me about the first Coke you ever had. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So growing up in China, Coca-Cola was kind of seen as something that only rich people in the West could afford. So when I was little, I really wanted to have a can of Coke. But that's not something that my parents would ever think about giving me uh, as a child. Like we were drinking water with con contaminated water and getting stomach worms. So Coke is like way far, not even in that realm of possibility. And then when I first came to Canada after my dad immigrated, he gave me a can of Coke. My hands were shaking so hard, I almost dropped it. And then when I took a sip, I had a massive nosebleed because <laughs> I was so excited. And I thought that my head had exploded because I, I didn't know what the heck was <laughs> happening. <laughs> Uh, I, I thought this was the best thing I've ever tasted in my life. 
And even after I finished drinking it, I didn't want to throw the can away because I thought it was so precious. I thought, oh, wow, I can finally have this thing. Maybe I should save it. Maybe I can use it as a toothbrush holder. And then, you know, this is like, I finally made it. This is, I've drank the rich person's drink and my life is now complete. So that was one of my happiest moments coming to Canada is getting a can of Coke. And here's the funny bit. Uh, we were recently talking about this story just between the two of us. And I realized now that the Coke that her dad gave her wasn't even like a Coca-Cola. It turned out it was an off-brand like oh, RC no. Cola thing that I like. I was like, what? And I was like, I would, you didn't even get a real Coke. And then she was like, this like, off-brand, this off-brand like you know RC Cola thing is the best thing ever. And I was like, oh hilarious. Jesus Christ, that makes this story even sadder. I didn't notice notice the difference. <laughs> Kirkland Coke was your very yeah, first time. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Bryce, where did you grow up? I was born in uh, Canada, and we grew up in a kind of a middle class uh, environment, and, and you know nothing even close to uh, what Christy uh, went through. Uh, even my parents went because um, her parents came from uh, mainland China, which was under the communist regime at the time and still is. My parents grew up in Hong Kong, which at the time was under British rule. So a lot of the economic like calamity that happened on the mainland, Hong Kong didn't get that because the British were running things and they knew what they were doing. So we didn't get nearly anything like that. But what's interesting is that you almost need the two kind of mindsets to, to make it and do this whole early retirement thing. Because where Christy, like her scarcity mindset that she developed by like, you know, pinching pennies and like clipping coupons because she had to, it kind of runs out of gas when it comes time to invest. The idea of putting money into a stock market that could go up and down. And, you know, recently we, we saw like an 800 point drop in the Dow. And if you have, you know, $10 or $100, that may not be a big deal. But when you are investing larger amounts, like the stock market, like, you know, when, with a million dollar portfolio, a 1% drop is $10,000. So we had yeah. to, so it, that was really, really scary for her. The idea that through no fault of our own, through randomness, you could, you, your portfolio or your thing could drop by several thousand dollars at once. So you kind of need the two mindsets to do this because you can't just save your way. It's much more difficult to save your way to a millionaire status if you don't invest as well. How did you get on this path? When did you start to say, you know what, we want to be young adults who are retired and totally financially independent? I didn't even know this was a path. <laughs> I was going along the traditional path of trying to buy a house because that's what everyone else was doing. Um, so after we got married, we immediately started house hunting. And because we lived in a major metropolitan city like Toronto and everything was so expensive, uh, it got really scary. <laughs> Hunting for a house when the average family home is over a million dollars is a terrifying experience. Because as soon as you walk through the open house, the first thing the real estate agent did was kind of size us up and think, can you afford this? <laughs> you look like you're five years old. Good luck trying to afford this. So then, you know, and as soon as you're, you're ready to put in a bid, then immediately there's a bidding war and it's just everybody's just going going crazy for the house and immediately gets picked up. And then we notice a lot of people flipping houses, like people buying dilapidated houses uh, for $400,000 and then taking just a month or two to flip it and selling it for 800000 So after a while, I just thought, this is a Ponzi scheme. I, I don't really want to be part of this. And then on top of that, there was people at work that was getting let go and there was the uh, fear of outsourcing at my work. So I didn't want to get into a massive amount of debt and then all of a sudden get laid off. So that's when we started looking for alternatives. 
And that's when we discovered financial independence retire early. We were reading blogs um, like Mr. Money Mustache, JL Collins online, people who were talking about low cost indexing and talking about like the 4% rule and how you can actually retire early. And even then, I still didn't believe it. Like Bryce had to show me the spreadsheet that he worked out and saying, hey, instead of buying a house, let's put that money into investing and you know, keep increasing our savings rate. And then over time, we should be able to uh, have enough money from the portfolio passively that we can retire in the next three to five years. And I thought he was crazy. And <laughs> I thought this is there's no way this is possible. And I thought he had done something wrong with the math. So I kept checking over the spreadsheet. Uh, the spreadsheet looked good and there wasn't anything wrong with the math, but I still didn't quite believe it. You know, coming from that scarcity mindset, when you're trying to explain investing to me, it, it just doesn't compute. Like all I thought about was just put money into a house or put money into a savings account and then the money won't be there. If you put it into the stock market, it's like gambling. But what I didn't realize was that if I was just going to put my money money into a savings account, I was actually going to lose money because over time, the interest that I was getting paid was not going to be able to offset inflation. Again, this is not something you get taught as a child. If you grew up in poverty, you just think every single penny is precious and definitely don't invest. That's really dangerous and only houses are safe. So it took me a really long time to get comfortable with this. So yeah, the math actually worked out. And because we invested, it actually took us only three years from that point. And then we actually quit at the ages of 31 and 32. And we've been traveling the world for the last four years. Which is pretty amazing. But you say, you know, you didn't learn about these techniques, these financial techniques growing up in poverty, Christy, but some of that mindset is what makes this easier or more possible for you. Because as I read through your story, I kept, you didn't say it out. By the way, one of the things I like about it is that the book is funny. You actually, you speak very frankly. You don't mince words. And in some places I hear you saying, you Americans or North Americans are spoiled, you spend too much on shit that doesn't matter, and you need to wake the hell up because you're playing somebody else's game and you're basically living your life to work for the man forever. Right. That's essentially what, what I'm hearing. Spoil. Okay, maybe spoiled is too strong a word, but it's like... Oh, come on. Laugh. Come on. You know you know, you wanted to say spoiled. Lack of perspective. Well, it's... <laughs> I, I like to I like to say you guys have been tricked into playing the game for somebody else rather than rather than that because because like the entire financial industry and the entire consumerist kind of culture is built around keeping you guys spending right and for sure um, if all consumers like stop spending the, the American economy would collapse so it's like there mm -hmm. is like there's like millions and millions of dollars of advertising revenue that goes into keeping you guys like spending on whatever stuff that you want and once your basic needs are I sold a lot of it, Bryce. That's how I made my money was selling advertising. Oh, there you go. So you're part of the problem. So you're part of the problem. Jeez. Ah, used to be. It bought me a big house. Christy, you should see my house. Now you're making up for the karma wise. It's, it's kind of odd that you, especially when you come from, or when she came from her background, and I, I still get that sometimes, even though I didn't grow up in that background, when somebody from like L.A. or uh, New York like writes into our blog and they say, oh, this is all the stuff that I spend money on. I can't think of a single thing to cut. And I'm looking through their, their spending list and there's stuff in there that I didn't even know existed. Like, what the hell is a pet psychologist? Like, what, is, what the hell is Soul Cycle? Like, you have that and a gym membership? It's like, it's just like there's stuff in there that they're just like, they're, they're spending items that like were invented just to give somebody some money to sp spend money on. And the trick that those guys do is they try to 
make you believe that you can't live without that thing anymore. Like once you have it. It's like when we were in Korea and we walked into a Samsung store and they were showing us all these new things and gadgety things that you need to buy. Like this closet that talks to you and then recommends clothing and then recommends, oh, you're, you have a friend's birthday coming up. Would you like to buy them this? And it's like, why do I want like a shopping cart always in my face, constantly projecting? Like I'm basically buying an ad. <laughs> my closet has been turned into a giant ad so that I can constantly be bombarded with ads. Yeah. Like, why do I need this? Yeah, 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 exactly. You're running out of milk. You should go buy some. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> or I could just look in the fridge. <laughs> you said there was a part of your experience, Christy, when you came here that there was a certain point where you realized you were getting sucked into the mindset of American, mm -hmm. North American consumerism. Oh, yeah. And you had to catch yourself. You were buying purses and you didn't Definitely. know why. Yeah. Guil <laughs> guilty as charged. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's incredibly <laughs> so, addictive. Yeah, yeah, this is something I like to call the immigrant rebound effect. So what happens is when you actually do earn money, then you start thinking, oh, I have money now. I have all the money. Maybe I need to spend it. And then you start looking at other people around you who had never grown up poor and they're all buying purses and you think, oh, that's status. Like I've made it to the middle class. I need to show off my status now. And I need to, you know, what, what are symbols of status? And for me, I looked at people, they were, they had all these, you know, name brand bags and things like that. Podcasts are symbol of status, I think. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Obviously. <laughs> there we go. Clearly. And then so at that point, I started to buy a lot of name brand luxury purses. But what was interesting about that experience was that after I bought my fifth purse, the feeling started to erode, like that feeling of happiness you get from the first purse. Uh, my first purse, I was so obsessed with researching it that Bryce came home to find me watching unboxing videos. Yeah, again. So these are videos you actually open up a purse out of the box and then you start describing all the hardware, the handles, not computer right. software, hardware, but like all, all the handles and the little designs and the different types of fabric. And Bryce like, what is wrong with you? And I'm yeah, like, oh yeah. my God, this is so addictive. And then, but then after my, my fifth purse, I was like, I am not feeling anything. <laughs> it's like once the junkie has had enough. Buy a more expensive purse in that case. They just need to up the ante, clearly. I didn't yeah. up the ante enough. That was the problem. And I have to thank my lucky stars that the purses that she did end up buying were like, you know, a couple hundred bucks, which is which is expensive for a purse. But there are certain brands out there that like during her purse shopping days, she could like rattle off the prices of these things. And some of them are like five thousand right? dollars. Yeah, this is Louis Vuitton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Like we, we were um, hanging out with a friend of ours who's like into the really like high end purses. And I was looking around the room and I could spot like fifty thousand dollars worth of purses <laughs> just in the room. And I was like, yeah. this place better not catch on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so how much of financial independence is just being like super conscious of what you want from money and not spending it on shit that doesn't make you happy? It's increasing the gap between your earning and your spending, like make that gap as big as possible. And one of the things that we've been finding out as we get people who write into us from the reader cases that we do on the blog is that geographic arbitrage is actually a way to, to make that work. So some people, it's not always about cutting because you don't want to be, you know, just it's not Depriving, about depravity yeah. all the time. I mean, I did buy, I did go on fancy vacations that I do not feel guilty about at all. Uh, but what it is, is, um, you know, with the ability to work online, there's like more and more jobs that you can do remotely. 
just like what we're doing right now, having a remote call. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you make the money in a, a place with a strong currency, and you live in a place with in a place with weak currency, or you make the money in an expensive city, but you live in somewhere that's less expensive, you increase the gap between how much you earn and how much you spend, and then that makes you become financially independent much faster. Just because you work in New York or San Francisco doesn't mean you have to retire in New York or San Francisco. And the thing I didn't realize was when I lived in a big expensive city I thought everything was just that price I was like this is how much rent is this is how much houses cost this is how much food costs that's just how it is you just have to deal with it and you just have to work more hours to pay for it but then after we got out of that bubble and we started traveling I discovered all sorts of places where the cost of living is extremely low like surprisingly too we went to Portugal and because before we had only gone on cruises we thought oh yeah you got to spend you know at least two to five thousand dollars on a vacation package for a week or two and that's how much things cost but then you actually go to Portugal and you go to southern Portugal like Lagos and then you find out that people's average salary is 1500 euros to a th- uh, or a thousand euros and then so you you realize that you can actually live quite well in Portugal on thirty thousand dollars a year which is something we totally wouldn't have realized if we had just stayed in an expensive city. So like Mm -hmm. in addition to being responsible with your money, there's all these life hacks that you can use to your advantage, geographic arbitrage being one of them to increase that gap between how much you earn and how much you spend. Yeah. It's all about, it's all about uh, like rather than sacrifice, it's about finding ways to spend your money more efficiently. Like uh, there's so much waste that happens in people's budgets just because a, they don't look to see what they have or, or B, they end up making silly decisions and then not revisiting them. Or like, here's an example of someone that I just uh, talked to. Like, you know, uh, if you have like all the like, streaming services, not all of the shows that you want to watch are all on the same service. So once you get your Netflix, right. you need, you know, Game of Thrones is on HBO and then like uh, Big Bang Theory is on something else and then Walking Dead is on something else. So what people end up doing is they end up like, subscribing to all of them at the same time. So I was talking right. to a guy that was that ended up like all of these services that they subscribed to was like over a hundred bucks. A month kind of thing right and i was like why don't you just switch between them and he's like what are you talking about and i was like okay just like one month stick to netflix watch all the shows on netflix that you like and then when and then suspend your your thing and then switch over to hbo and then the next month get all your game of thrones like watch all that and then switch so as a result like that just and because you are like kind of you're spending time away from one of the services you're giving like you're allowing more shows to like build up so that you can binge watch it again later like when you come back to it so it gives you time to miss those shows right you'd be like oh yeah what would happen to that thing so it's like it dropped his like streaming services budget from like a hundred dollars to like ten dollars a month and, wow. and and with no drop of because you only you only subscribe to one of them at a time that's an example of something that's like no drop in the quality of life like you're still enjoying what you want it's just that you're being is that you're finding ways of getting the same quality of life and the same enjoyment out of it by spending like 10% of what you were doing before. Those are the kinds of things that we like to teach people. Like optimize, right? Don't deprive, optimize. I think one of the things that I want to inspire people to do is to ask the right questions about money. The presumption in our modern Western society is that, hey, richer is better, but really richer isn't better, happier is better. So what do you want? What questions do you want your readers asking of themselves? I think you need to prioritize what's important to you rather than just spend money on everything and don't even think about it. So what prioritizing means is just, for example, for us, freedom is really important and traveling is really important. But I am not really interested in having a lot of expensive objects. Like I tried the purses, didn't really help. Because that's kind of like an assignment to me because I have to keep cleaning it and maintaining it. But then maybe somebody else is not interested in travel. They rather have a nicer house and have nicer things. And that's fine. But you need to figure out, you know, 
know, the three biggest things that's most important to you and then spend towards that instead of just having money go everywhere. Like you need to optimize your expenses to maximize your happiness rather than just spend money because everyone else is spending money. Yeah, it's about it's about like asking yourself like what your values are. So an exercise that we've been doing lately and, and encouraging people to do is list off like the three or four things that are really the most important to you. And a lot of people say like kind of like, you know, spending time with family and like, you know, enjoying a good bottle of wine and, uh, you know, this kind of like, you know, spending quality time and not stressing out too much and this kind of stuff. And then it's just kind of like, is, is how you're spending aligning with those values, right? Because a lot of times it's not. Most of the stuff that makes people happy are cheap. Spending time with your family is actually not that expensive, right? Yeah. You can make it really expensive, but it doesn't have to be. And some, and, and oftentimes, especially when, you, when you're doing it with like kids, just playing catch in the park is, is, is like free, but it's way better than say like, you know, it's, it's way better for the kid and they, they're happier than say spending a lot of money and then going like driving all the way to like some cottage and like, you know, doing this kind of thing. So figuring out how your money values aligns with your like, actual values is really, really important. And it also allows you to identify places in which you're spending money and it's not making you any happier. I like those questions. I want to talk about fire and I want to come clean about my fire bias. So again, okay, sure. for those listeners who don't spend their time reading financial blogs or reading the books that I get to read, fire stands for financial independence, retire early. And I am very happy to see the next generation spending a lot of time talking about frugality as a means to achieve financial independence. But having retired myself at 42 and finding myself lonely with a lack of identity and missing being a part of a team, I think retire early is a misguided notion. However, I suspect that you all have thought a lot about what retirement means. What does it mean to you? Oh, yeah. We get this question a lot because, um, you know, if when I actually, quote, quote, retired, uh, it wasn't just like given. I thought it was going to be give my notice to my boss and then just be like super happy and, and skipping out of the building. But it was actually really terrifying because what happens when you retire is that that identity that you have been developing for the last decade, all of a sudden now you're you have to make a new identity or figure out what it is that you want to do with your life. Right. So, yeah, I, I agree with you that it's not really about retirement. It's actually about financial independence and then you can choose. If you actually like your job, why do you have to quit, right? But the fact that you're financially independent means that if that job were to go away or it gets worse or you get a new director and everything just turns around, I, I have had that happen. I've had multiple jobs in the past in which I liked it in the beginning, it's gotten worse. You don't have to be afraid anymore. But whether you decide you want to retire or not, some people love retiring. Some people love you know retiring and spending time with their family and spending time with their kids and it's their most favorite thing ever. But maybe other people who are extremely a type i'm one of those people uh don't want to spend all their time you know hanging around their family members or sitting on a beach and then you can be free to do whatever it is that you want uh, we actually talk about this in the book something we like to call the financial the fi armor the financial independence armor because what happens when you become financially independent is that that's like an armor so you will not be afraid that your job is going to turn bad and if you want to develop a new identity, you can go try it. If you, For me, like I always wanted to be a writer, but financially that didn't make any sense. But now I can actually decide to do that. And if I don't make any money from blogging, it doesn't matter. And if I want to write a children's book and it doesn't make any money, it doesn't matter. So it's the fact that you become financially independent and you are invincible so that you can choose what you want to do with your life and whether that's retiring or not, it's completely up to you. Yeah, most people end up doing something after retirement, like a second identity, a second career. Like they they often 
there is this like you know this decompression period of you know six months uh, or two up to a year where people just really just like sit around in their underwear and play video games and that's great, <laughs> but you know anybody who ends up being the overachiever that and and accumulating the amount of money that it requires to to do this is not the kind of person who likes to do that like all the time. They end up getting bored and they want to do something. They want to find, and they all have great skills that they acquired in the last job, but maybe the, the last job that they had had bad things about it that they didn't like. So they go off and do and do other things. And um, that's kind of what we, we did uh, with the blog and the book. I mean, um, now the post-retirement thing, stuff that we're doing has now morphed into you know a full-fledged career now. I couldn't have predicted that. And yeah, I mean, like th- that, these kind of things just happen. I mean, like, what was your retirement journey like? You left advertising and now you're a comedian. That's quite a jump as well, right? But I'd imagine a lot of those skills are transferable from your old job to what you do now. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, telling, <laughs> telling jokes is an important part of selling advertising. It's about sales. I mean, it's about communicating really well. And that's what comedians do really, really well, right? Well, yeah, my journey was basically like, I grew up in a a wonderful home, but it was crowded, a lot of kids competing for resources. And I always found myself thinking, I'm going to make a lot of money someday, so I don't have to worry about money. Right. And I made a lot of money, and I still worry about money, of course. (laughs) But when I made a certain amount of Facebook, I was like, I've got enough, period. Bye. I'm out of here. And when I left, I realized that work was about a lot more than just a paycheck and that I miss my friends at work. I miss having a title that I could be proud of. I miss being a part of a team, all these kinds of things. And so I didn't foresee that coming. And my worry about the fire movement is that now you guys are kicking ass. Christy's my new hero. Sorry, Bryce, you're pretty cool too, but Christy's (laughs) a badass. You know, but like coming from where she came from and what she's accomplished, and I really believe some of the stuff that, you know, I was talking about before, it's not that necessarily everybody's spoiled over here, but like the focus on working hard to get what you want, the focus on long-term thinking, the focus on short-term denial of desires to get where you want to go, I think that's missing in our society. Not just a little bit, like a lot. Sure. But that the focus on retiring early, you guys are doing great, but there's other people out there that are like, I'm going to bail on my job because I'm stressed and I have a million dollars and then go spend three years doing whatever they do and they realize either, well, this isn't what I wanted or my parents sick and then I got to go back to work and I've missed three years of income and I'm not where I am. And so... Maybe that's my rigid Gen X mentality, but that's where I come from. And I think there's some downsides that are worth considering here. Oh, yeah. The, the FI stuff is important, but the retiring part is not. I mean, like I have a couple of friends that are still back in my uh, old company that they hit their FI number and they continue to work for the exact same reasons that, they, that you have before. They like the community. They kicked ass at their job. And uh, what was interesting about those guys is that once they got their FI armor, they ended up taking more risks. Like they were able to, to like, oh, this big, like this big project that nobody knows how to how to do it. He just, they were just able to kind of go, you know what? Let me take a uh, let me take a crack at it. And then like they wouldn't have done that kind of thing before if they were scared of screwing up and looking bad and maybe losing their job. They did it because they're just kind of, mm, I don't care. Like I'm just going to tell the truth. I'm going to say what I think it needs to happen. I'm just going to make it happen. And those guys, because they started doing that and taking more risks in their career, they end up actually advancing in their career and now they're like directors and VPs and this kind of stuff, right? So the FI part actually made them less afraid to take risks at work and as a result, that actually made them better workers. So you can do the FI stuff, but you don't have to do the RE part. Yeah, no, that sounds cool. I mean, that's great. And I think that's one of the things is like financial independence is power. You don't have to stay at a job with a lecherous boss or do something (laughs) that you absolutely hate if you've got the money in the bank to go live life on your terms. It's just like 
that's that my concern is the nuance between retiring early and living life on your terms. Absolutely. And for the people who do want to lose their job, uh, want to leave their jobs, there are <laughs> lose their job. Uh, <laughs> want to lose your job. There are communities around that have formed. Um, when we first retired in 2015, we kind of felt like, you know, the odd ones out. And there were other, a handful of bloggers online talking about this, but we didn't really have the community. But now there's, um, you know, financial retreats all over the place. Uh, Chautauquas happen every uh, yearly that we're a part of, and as well as um, the Choose FI groups. Uh, we just went to a meetup in Toronto of um, so many people that are FI enthusiasts. And what I find out with these meetups is that inevitably you end up talking for hours about FI. Like it's people I've never met before. And then five hours later, we shut down the mall because we were talking so much about finances mm. and they have the same mm. values, right? Because they care about optimizing happiness. It isn't just about buying things and showing off the newest, shiniest thing. I would highly encourage people who are thinking of retiring or just wondering what their next step in life is going to be, wondering what their next chapter is going to be to, to check out the Chautauquas and to check out the uh, Choose FI meetup groups around the world to find your tribe find your tribe it doesn't have to be your work tribe there's many different tribes that you can be a part of and if you find that tribe it'll make you a lot happier in you know, retirement and what's interesting is that you know following some of these people that we've known that have retired and are going out and doing random things they end up meeting other buyer people and then they end up like cooperating and starting businesses together like mm -hmm. uh, someone was a dentist and yeah. another person was a uh, computer programmer uh -huh. and the two of them got together to make an app um, that helps dentists find like temporary work depending on where they're located. Yeah, Carl from Mr. 1500 and Pete, uh, Mr. Money Mustache, they're yeah, like, they like built this like a co-working space. space together. Yeah. He's also like, they're like filling their time with stuff that they actually cared about, except now you get to choose who you get to, you have to work with rather than it being thrust upon you. I think that's the best part. The fact that you get to choose who you work with now, right? Because now the people that we work with, we love them. And sometimes at work, you don't really get to choose. Like you could have a great team, but then those people could end up moving on to other positions. You could be assigned to another project where there's people that you don't like. So there is advantage to that flexibility of being able to choose who you actually work with. Yeah, there's this, there's this debate inside the EFI community about like the FIRE acronym because the RE part is pretty loaded for exactly the reasons that you were talking about before. And they're like, oh, we need to change the acronym. We need to do I'm like, I don't think we need to change it. FIRE is great. Like you can say stuff like the FIRE is spreading and like catching FIRE and playing with FIRE and do all these like kind of things. And, and I was like, what are you going to change it to? I was like, okay, how about this? Financial independence, be responsible. FIBER. Is that better? Like, do, does that make you, do you hear something like fiber and then does that make you like excited? It's like, no, stick with fire. It's, I like the controversy. It opens up the debate just like you and I are having right now. Fiber is really good for you, Bryce. Uh, <laughs> Get on, on the fiber it's, train. Oh God. That's right. That's right. I'm on the fiber train, Christy. Christy, you came from the end of the world's bottom 1% and now you're in the world's top 1%. Bryce, you didn't come from quite as humble beginnings financially as she did. And in 2008, after you all were first in the market and then the market took a nosedive, Christy said to you, Bryce, if you screw up, your parents will come save you. If I screw up, I'll drag my parents down with me. Yeah. That's some heavy shit to have in a relationship. <laughs> Have you guys balanced that out as you become more comfortable with your status? Yeah, I, I think that the big part of it is that, uh, like, I don't try to convince her with, like, emotional arguments. Or I was like, when it comes time to something, to do something that we're not sure of, we always go back to the math. So mm. it's a very kind of, it's a very Asian thing yeah. where we have, we have like, <laughs> math fights. You like, said oh. it. 
<laughs> you said it. <laughs> yeah. it. Okay, here's an example. So okay. at, at one point, when we were living in the one-bedroom apartment that we rented, I am kind of a hoarder <laughs> because, again, the scarcity mindset causes you to never want to throw anything away. So, But then to me, it was ex- it was kind of extreme. Like, I wouldn't even throw away empty CD cases. Remember CDs? <laughs> And then even then I I saved the CD cases just in case I might find the missing CD and I might need it someday. And it was getting to a point where our apartment was caving in with my stuff. But Bryce, to his benefit, didn't try to convince me or say like, why are you keeping all this crap? You need to get rid of it. He simply said, okay, you want a bigger place? You want to not throw these things away because you think it's a waste? Let's go apartment hunting slash house hunting. And then, you know, we, we looked around for other rentals. We looked around for houses. And I came to the conclusion that if I were to rent another place, we were paying an average that was way below the market value, right? So I realized that if we had gone out and rented a bigger place, the amount of extra rent that we would have to pay per month or mortgage that we would have to pay far, far exceeds how much I was losing by throwing things away. So I did the math and I was like, oh, okay, you know why? You may be right. I, I might just try to get rid of some things. But even then I was still like, nobody touched my books. I'm not allowed, I don't want to get rid of any of my books. And then kind of just kind of eroded over time, like that obsession with holding on to things and becoming a hoarder. Uh, that kind of eroded over time because I was like, maybe I can donate some of this. Maybe I can donate some of this. And then eventually, I think this was five or six years later when we retired, now we're actually living out of two backpacks and we have enough clothes for a week and that's basically all we have so I went from hoarding to living out of two backpacks and becoming uh, minimalists because Bryce didn't try to push his view onto me he, he simply just let me come to the conclusion myself because if he had said anything I would have immediately just turned around and say well you didn't grow up in poverty you don't know what it's like to right, think yeah. you don't you don't understand the scarcity mindset she so, would say that yeah, yeah I would have gotten very defensive so what I think really helped in his case when you are a couple and talking talking about finances instead of judging me he simply set an example of how happy he was with less stuff and with being more organized and not having to maintain things. And then I kind of followed suit. And then I made the conclusion myself that I wanted that type of life. I want, I didn't want all this clutter and I wanted to be free and I didn't want to spend all this money on extra uh, space. So I had to come to that conclusion. He could never have dragged me there just by telling me what to do. So to answer your question, manipulating my wife <laughs> via math yeah. is the bedrock so, of our relationship. Yes. Manipulation is, is the key to our relationship. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's fantastic. (laughs) You all have a phrase that I love called math shit up. Yeah. Which means if you want to know the answer, do the work. Do the math. Yeah, math shit up. Because math is truth, right? I mean, like any, like especially with financial, uh, financial decisions, finance is math, right? And what boggles my mind is when people make financial decisions like, oh, I'm going to buy this house. Why? I don't know. Uh, It has really nice countertops. It's like if you make financial decisions emotionally, someone's going to get like you're going to get screwed because guess what the person on the other side of that trade is making their entering this transaction with the intent of making money right they're using math and you're not and so you you're bringing a knife to a gunfight if you don't understand the math you can't make financial decisions emotionally because then you get screwed i think we're a little lazy in the west you know i think we i think we just like i want that i have enough money i'm going to buy it mm-hmm. it's like well just cuz you have the money doesn't mean it's going to make you happier right if you trade money for that thing you just do it based on what you want as opposed to what you need. And I, I think part of that is because of credit. So this is what we talk about in the book. Um, there's this chapter where I talk about in China, growing up, I never had credit cards. Uh, if you couldn't afford it, you just didn't buy it. I can't afford that TV. It's going to cost me a, a year of work to buy it. No TV for me. I'm going to have to read books or do something else, right? What debt does is it, it distorts the... Um, 
the uh, connection between time and money because you actually had to spend time to work for that money. So then when you actually mm -hmm. make that decision, you're like, how many hours of my life did I give up to do this? And how many more hours of my life am I going to have to put into work in order to pay to maintain this uh, versus debt just makes you think, oh, that's future me's problem. I'll just think like that's that's me in five years from now. I, I don't care. Like that me is a totally different me. Screw that person. That person can deal with it. So you really don't. It, it causes your brain to not realize that you're putting money towards this thing and how much of your life energy is going towards that item. And I'm going to go against type here and I'm going to defend white people because I don't think it's a lazy Yeah, <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Finally, somebody stick it up for the white man. Thank you. Because <laughs> I don't think you're, you, I don't think it's laziness. It's your, your school system is deliberately keeping you guys ignorant about, about finances and math. The Asian school system is like heavily emphasizes math, but in North North America, you guys almost never talk about money in high school or, or anywhere. And the reason why they're doing this is it's the financial industry is deliberately keeping you guys ignorant. So there's a um, so this is a this is something that really shocked me. This is one of the things that happened from one of the previous Chautauquas. And then they, you know, this person retired and then I was like, okay, what do you want to do afterwards? And she's really passionate about education. She's a teacher. So she wanted to put together this course that helps kids learn about money, learn about uh, financial independence and retirement at a high school level. So I was like, fantastic, go do it. So she did it for like one or two years and everyone loved it. The students loved it. The teachers loved it. The administrators loved it. And then the third year she came back, they're like, hey, do you want to do that course again? And then they're like, we can't. And then she goes, why? Well, as it turns out, one of the big banks had donated a ton of money to the school district they had bought them a new football field but the only strings attached to that was that all the financial education had to come from them so all of a sudden mm. she got cut mm. out of teaching people what the right thing to do was and then all the financial education got replaced with hey kids credit cards are fun you know what's great mm. student loans you know what look at look at how fun swiping this thing is you want to do this this is where happiness comes from making a lot of money and then spending it and so it's like the financial industry is deliberately keeping you guys ignorant and that's kind of why what we're trying to do with this whole fire stuff and, and the book as well why we think it's so important because you guys are getting like really the short end of the stick and being almost trained to keep yourselves in debt and keep yourselves working forever and the reason why they're doing that is because it allows the financial companies to profit off you forever but Bryce, it goes deeper than that. I mean, we part of credit is avoiding pain, right? Is mm -hmm. or putting off pleasure. In the Chinese culture, there's a I'm not even gonna try to pronounce it, I can't <laughs> pronounce your last name, but there's a phrase that means that means eat bitterness. That right. means sure, cool. yeah. you yeah. know, like to accept it and look it in the eye and take it. And the more you can take, the stronger person you are. Right. Yeah. Christy, tell me more about that. Yeah, so this is a concept that my dad taught me. Uh, it's chuku, which literally means eat bitterness. So even now, my dad, every now and then, he'll eat this melon called bitter melon. That's literally what it tastes like. It's really disgusting. It looks disgusting. It tastes disgusting. I don't know why he eats it. Uh, but he says it reminds him of what suffering tasted like very melodramatic that's just how we are and he said that during the the famine like that's one of the it's inevitable but inedible but it's one of the vegetables that people ate because they didn't want to starve but that bitterness is what our culture is made of it's the fact that if you are struggling and you're suffering through something you change your mindset to think that that's going to build character and you see it as pushing through hardship without complaints and that's what makes you a stronger person and i think that that's really true and the thing is if we didn't have any hardships in life then you wouldn't really develop the ability to handle 
whatever comes your way because life is unpredictable and there there is going to be a lot of suffering and challenges but uh, knowing and learning how to overcome that challenge and then you know in order to put aside the happiness and the gain for the long term and then in the short term developing your ability to make you stronger that's what that's what makes you a better person and I, I absolutely agree with that if he hadn't taught me how to chirku I would there's no way I would be here because the second I run, run into an obstacle I would just be like ah I don't know ah somebody will fix it for me I don't know what to do throw up hands give up I think your dad might be Catholic. Actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually, you know what? I, I, I was born, uh, I was brought up in a Catholic school, and now, now that you say it, I'm seeing a lot. Uh, oh. Like now, I can see that link now, and I was like, oh things. yeah, it's the self-flagellation yep. that's part of the Catholic culture, right? It's like, oh yeah, I, I didn't make that connection till now. That's right. That's yeah. right, Christy. Before you made money, how did you feel about rich people? Um, I secretively uh, aspire to be them while at the same time kind of hating them. <laughs> so it's kind of like, I want to be a rich person, but why wasn't I just rich to begin with? But again, that's where the mindset comes in, right? So I, I've been trained because of this perspective. Instead of being jealous and not doing anything about it, I've, I've been trained to always think, it could be so much worse because it really could be the fact that yeah i grew up in poverty and you know like all these like i had health problems and i was bullied for my thrift store clothing and all these things but if you take a look back and kind of step back from the situation it really was kind of thinking yes this is not something that i chose but what can i do about it right so that drove me that drove me to eventually become financially independent because i didn't ever want to be poor again so i didn't want to rely on anybody and as a result i made decisions for my education that was based on math i talk about the pot score which is pay over tuition so that mm -hmm. I, I don't have to get into a lot of debt i made decisions based on what to put my money towards instead of being in debt and buying the house and as a result i achieved freedom at this age which is something that completely i was never expecting it if i was a child you told me that i was going to travel the world and become a millionaire i would have laughed in your face because that's not something i would have ever conceived of but by learning all these lessons and by having the perspective i think it really makes you a stronger person so yeah so there was a little bit of why wasn't i born rich like why are rich people just have it so easy but the other part is changing my mindset to say, you know what, I'm not going to see hardships as hardships, I'm going to see them as character building. So that's, that's what got me through it all. Do you still think that money's worth bleeding for? Um, no, not anymore. <laughs> like, what is money now? I don't really think about it. Uh, I think that if you are in a really bad situation and you grew up in poverty, it's definitely not your fault. And you have to make a lot of sacrifices to get to where you are. But I don't think it has to be like one or the other. I think if you make smart decisions, I think being born in, you know, the West, like whether it's Europe or Canada or the US, you already have, or Australia, you already have a huge advantage over most of the people in the world. There's a statistic that says if you earn $34,000 a year, you're already top 1% of the entire world, right? So I don't really think of it as bleeding for money anymore. I think of it as taking the advantage that you have and then using that to live the best life that you have. Yeah, in many, in many ways, your listeners who are who grew up in America or uh, in, anywhere in a developed country, their journey is doesn't have to be as arduous as Christie's because forty four cents a day. I mean, like like the federal poverty level in America is something like you know ten fifteen thousand dollars something like that. I, I don't remember exactly what the number is, but it's not forty four cents a day. 
But the big challenge is that if for people who start off in the middle class and are trying to get into achieving fire, it's less so about like the hard sacrifice and it's more about like avoiding stepping on really bad landmines. So, you know, in America, student debt is like the biggest landmine that you guys have because it's so difficult to discharge. And again, we were just talking about like how the financial industry is deliberately keeping kids ignorant about how harmful debt is because when they're 18, they don't know what they're doing, but that's when they're making the decisions that, that end up haunting them for, like, you know, decades. Right. I, I, people write right into us and and they're just like, I'm in so much student debt, what do I do? And the numbers are jaw dropping. I like, I've seen people write into us with that, that are saying that they have like $180,000 of like student debt. And I was like, how is that even possible? Nowhere else in the world has that kind of, has those kinds of numbers. But, but once you step on those landmines, it becomes very, very, very difficult to like extricate yourself from that situation. So for you guys, it's, it's even more important to learn about these concepts and to learn about it early so that you can uh, avoid doing something that'll blow you up like for the next 20 years because it's ridiculously easy to do. And the same could be said for our healthcare system, which which we don't really have time to dive into. Last subject I want to get to is um, you, you have some great travel hacking tips. And then I want you to tell me what's a typical month like for you guys. And I happen to have caught you in Toronto during some downtime, but this doesn't sound like where you normally spend your time. A uh, typical month, yeah. So we're actually in Toronto visiting family, but usually uh, we like to spend the winters in Asia because we've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia. And I keep going back to Chiang Mai, Thailand. I'm just really, really obsessed with that city. Um, mm. The people are really nice. The food is amazing. You can get massages for $10. You can live really well on $25,000 a year. Before, we used to hop around every two days trying to visit as many countries as possible because we didn't have a lot of time to travel while we were working. But now that we've kind of, we've been traveling for four years, so now we've kind of slowed down and we're doing more of a slow travel. So we tend to spend at least a week in a city, sometimes up to a month. So we tend to kind of take our time kind of getting, you know, getting absorbed with local culture. We don't do any touristy things anymore. We don't really go visit churches. We don't really go on, you know, buy those tourist packages to visit because we've already seen a lot of churches. We've already seen a lot of those touristy things, right? So it, it really is about uh, taking it slow, getting used to the local culture, uh, going out to eat, meeting up with friends, getting a massage. It's just really just taking life one day at a time slowly. And sometimes we alternate between doing like a day of passion project, like maybe we'll work on the blog and then taking a day off to maybe sit on a beach or go biking and just kind of, it's kind of like you're living your life, but the background is changing, right? Rather than mm. we're, we're hopping from one city to another just to visit as many countries as possible. Uh, and then after this Toronto little like relaxation time, we are going to go to Portugal. And then after that, we're going to Ireland. It's almost like the world has become one city and we're visiting multiple communities. So we have our community back home, our family and friends in North America. And then we have our uh, passion project friends in the UK that we work on projects together. And then we have friends in Asia who are expats. And then there's another community called the World Schoolers of people who travel around with their kids. So there's like different communities that you can meet. And then you just figure out which time of year that's best for that part of the world. And we're just moving around between them. So it sounds like you found your people spread out all over the planet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you mentioned travel um, hacking tips. Uh, one of the things that helps us a lot is actually staying in Airbnbs. So when we were vacationing back when we were working, we spent a lot of time in hotels. 
So the problem with hotels is that number one, it's a lot more expensive. And number two, you don't really get to cook. So we were going out to eat all the time and I was gaining a lot of weight very easily. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, and then after a while, it's kind of the, a lot of the food really gets to you and your stomach doesn't like it. So now that we're staying in Airbnbs, we can actually do laundry and we can actually cook. So that helps a lot with the waistline. That helps a lot with um, the different types of food that you want to try out. And um, yeah, in general, we stay in Airbnbs and we also do some travel hacking with credit cards. So when you get points, you can use the uh, sign up points to get free flights around the world. Uh, we also take Norwegian, uh, one of our favorite airlines, because Norwegian, for example, we took a flight from Miami to London and it only cost 200 US dollars per person. What? Uh, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And within Europe, it's really easy to get around with trains and Ryanair as well as EasyJet. We took a bus ride from Belgium to Amsterdam and it cost us like $5. <laughs> I was like, I think you're losing money by driving us between these cities. I really have no idea how they're making money. The theory was that underneath the coach, there were just a stash of drugs. And, they, <laughs> and, they were, that, that was, and we were just their Drug cover meals. story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's the only reason. One of those casino buses. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. Could, could be one of those. But yeah, so it's really not that expensive to travel. It's actually less expensive to travel than staying at home. And there's a lot of different ways that you can cut down your cost by staying in Airbnbs, um, using travel hacking with points, as well as, you know, using Uber. And yeah, we just found that this lifestyle is really easy in that you don't really have to worry about cleaning that much because the Airbnb takes care of it. It's part of the cleaning fee. You don't really have to worry about maintaining things because, you know, we don't, we don't really own much. We just have two backpacks and we can just arrive in a city and then we are ready to, to pack. I, I was telling Bryce, if we, if we ever run into a disaster, we would be so set for life because we could just pack in 15 minutes. Yeah. Like pack everything done. There's no there need to go. like mess about and figure out what you need to take. You're, we're out of there. So no need to worry about that. Yeah. All right. Last question for both of you. Since you have minimized your possessions, what's the one possession you won't give up? Hmm. I think for me, probably my laptop. Yeah. Yeah, because I like to write a lot, so writing is kind of my part of my identity. What about you? Yeah, I have to say my I have to say my laptop. Otherwise, we couldn't go on awesome podcasts with awesome people yeah, like you. There you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. All right, Christian Bryce, where should our listeners go to find out more about you? Yeah, so you can find out more about our book at www.quitlikeamillionaire.com. And you can also check out our blog at www.millennial-revolution.com. All right. Well, best of luck and continue living the best life. Sounds like it's going amazingly. Ooh, I don't know what happened right there. Anyway, abrupt ending to the uh, to the show. Thank you, Christy and Bryce, for spending time with us today. Really appreciate you sharing your story with us and wish you great luck moving forward. Hey, folks, I got some comedy shows coming up. New York City this weekend, September 12th through 14th. Caroline's, the Halyards Bar in Brooklyn, Westside Comedy Club, and Gotham Comedy Club. Go to my website, paulollinger.com slash events to see more details. Also, Flagstaff, Arizona, September 19th and 20th. Epic Comedy Hour in Huntsville, Alabama. That there's NASA territory, folks. And Red Clay Comedy Festival, October 4th and 5th, right here in Atlanta, in East Atlanta Village. Thank you very much to my producer and spiritual guide, Mike Carano, for making all this happen. Thank you to you for spending time with me. I hope you have a great day. Make it count. See ya.